Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hello, 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 everybody. Hello, and welcome to the greatest podcast on the planet for fishing, your saltwater guide. We got another great show for you today. We got my good buddy, Bill Varney, jumping in here with us. He just got done driving all the way from Long Beach, California, back to his house in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. So we're going to find out about how bitching the drive was and how fun it is to live where he lives and that snow because he was just telling me he had to turn on his heater. I told him I just had to turn on the air here before I started my show. So you got two different extremes right now down here in Cabo. We got about 82 degree, 82 degrees outside and the water is 75 and fish are biting and things are happening. But we're going to check in with my good buddy Bill and see what's going on up there in beautiful Colorado here in just a couple of minutes. It's Akuma Wednesday. We always talk about an Akuma product on Wednesday. We're going to be talking about the new Tesoro spinning reels here in a little bit. We'll show you a little video with my good buddy John. But without any further ado, let's get into talking about fish and Bill. Welcome to the show. How you doing, buddy? Hey, good to be here. Good to be back home and good to see you, Dave. I'm sorry it's so warm down there. Yeah. Apologies. It was a <laughs> word in edgewise with you at the show. You were so busy, so it's good to have you back here and I could talk to you. There were so many people that came up to me and asked me for the free shirt you were giving them. <laughs> I'll be keeping that up for a while. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. People are going, hey, Bill Barney says if I come over here and tell you I saw him on my show on your show, I get a free shirt. I'm like, what in the heck are you talking about? Thanks. At least somebody came up and talked to me because of that. Yeah, I saw actually quite a few people came to the booth that watch us on on Wednesdays and love your show, Dave. Really, really do. Had great, lots of great things to say about it. So it was great to see them. And it's so great to see people there that, you know, all year long, you know, they've been storing up their surf fishing questions. And and that's a great place to sit down and, and, and talk about it. Yes, absolutely. And your seminars were pretty packed with people that had real questions that were really interested in what's going on in the fly fishing world. I mean, in the surf fishing world, it was cool to see. And I got a ton of comments from people saying what a joy it is to have you on your show, have you on my show. And a lot of people said Wednesdays are the only real day they watch. <laughs> well, you know, it was also good to see Wes, Wes there. And, and I thought the funniest thing was when Wes was doing his presentation, um, you know, about these beautiful, you know, like 50, 60 pound rooster fish, 100 pound grouper, Dorado in the serve, all that stuff. You know, not, not only did I tell him that I felt inadequate, but, uh, you know, size wise and all. But when he told the crowd that he charges $250 a person and includes him picking them up down at the harbor on, at the Malacon, taking them, you know, basically 17 miles up the road to the beach, supplying all of the equipment, which is about $2,000 per setup. And he charges $200. I mean, there was a gasp in the room. So, uh, I, I, I think anybody out there, if you, if you're down in Cabo, you got to take a day and, 
you know, four or five, six hours in that day, five thirty to about noon time and go fishing with him. Oh, it's an incredible like we were talking when he was on the show a couple of weeks or a week ago. The places he can go in his car, you can't even find those places if you went and tried to figure it out on your own. So that that in itself's worth every penny of the adventure. But then to have the best tackle and know exactly where to cast and how to do it. And the things that you see when you're with Wes is absolutely incredible. You go with me and Bill, we'd miss 90% of it because we have no idea where to go, where to look. So yeah, it's it's a phenomenal education for lack of a better word, just going and seeing the places that he gets to go to in his car that you and I can't go to because of who he is and how long he's lived here. He knows everybody. He knows every gate, everywhere to get in. It's pretty incredible. He really does every nook and cranny and back road, dirt road, motorcycle road, trail, way to the beach. You know, yeah, it's amazing. And he's got connections. Yes, he does. Gates get open when Wes pulls up. That never would get open if you or I pulled up. It's an incredible time. I was watching his presentation on Saturday, and he was showing he was fishing. There's an island down here called uh, Saravo over by La Paz, and there's a big, big uh, rock about a mile away from the island. And uh, I was watching the video. I wasn't really listening. I was talking to some other people, and then out of the corner of my eye, I saw – the island, we, the rock we call Arena, and there's Wesley standing in the middle of the rock fishing. I've never even seen anybody on the rock. And then I talked to him and his wife after, and he goes, "Yeah, I begged them to let me sleep on the rock. That rock is <laughs> that rock is covered with sea lions and bird poop. It's an it's not a and flies, but Wesley he doesn't care. He's right in the middle of it, hoping to get a wahoo." Exactly. And and Saravo Island, you know, the, the first time I fished around that island was uh, 1987. And I remember, go, yeah, going out of Punta Colorado on, on a ponga to go over there. And the guys were, you know, were saying, hey, what do you want to go fishing for? We want to go fish for yellowfin tuna. And they said, okay, we're going to take you to a spot that's got like 40 to 80 pounders. And we go over there. We were, it was basically pretty much wide open there. It was nice. 35 feet deep there where we were fishing. And I had always fished on the long range boats, long range boats in, in 2000 feet of water where, you know, you, you hook a tuna, it sounds, it goes down, goes into the circle, you fight it at the surface. And here we were in 35 feet of water on these big fish. I didn't even know that tuna until then came into 35 feet of water. So instead of going down, they would just peel off line and go straight out. And you just crossed your fingers that you 1987, that was before braid, that you had enough line that it wasn't going to snap off and take every inch you had. So to float on that island out there offside, outside of Saravo Island and fish is really a dream for, for people like us that like to fish from shore. Oh, it's just incredible. And I can't even believe what it must have been like back then when you were there because it's an incredible fishery now. With And back in yeah. those days, there was no one there. That's that's That had to be just absolutely insane. But gang, it, it, today, yeah. today we're going to do something different. We're going to open this up. If you want to send a question in for Bill, you want to talk about surf fishing, you want to do any of that stuff, you can jump on. Leave a comment on either YouTube or Facebook right now. Bill will try to answer all those questions.
But Bill, we got to talk about this storm, baby. They're talking somewhere like 11 inches of rain in the next six, seven days. We got little breaks in between, but we got a big storm hitting tomorrow. Then we got another one hitting on Monday. Just rain, 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 rain. I think we really do have an El Nino here. Well, I, I know that we've got an El Nino going. When I went to get sand crabs last week at Seal Beach Pier, the water was at least 60 degrees. It, it was probably about six degrees warmer in Southern California last week than it would normally be that time of year. And we're, we're going to see feet of snow in the Sierras. I, and we're going to see it all the way, the snow all the way down to the mountains behind San Diego. And then inches, if not a foot of rain in some places. And then all of that stuff is going to come from the west and make its way through Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado. They're expecting here around two feet of snow um, beginning Friday night. And, of course, all of that snow uh, or frozen water becomes water in the spring. And it's going to make its way down the Colorado River to California. The, the Colorado River, which we drive uh, along on the way back here home, um, is really at the level right now we would normally see in about July. It's very high for this time of year, which means that there's an excessive amount of water melting in, 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 in from last year, still coming off into Havasu and Lake Mead and so on and so forth. So we are filling up those dams. Um, this is great for surf fishing because it, it, particularly when you're looking at Bologna Creek, Santa Ana River, um, L.A. River, Los Alamitos, all of those areas where fresh water comes out, that's going to really incentivize not only all those lobster, which you've been catching, but all the striper. The striper are going to be coming in the spring, and I think we're going to see a really, you know, maybe even a bite on striper this year in Orange County and in San Diego and L.A. County, where you can actually go and target them for a change. Yeah, that would be incredible, right? I mean, when you yeah. got all this rain, I think you might even see some salmon this year in Southern California. Yeah, absolutely. Especially up in Santa Barbara around the um, the oil derricks or the oil piers, the oil island that's off La Conchita. Those spots, there's a big canyon out there. They have traditionally have had silver salmon there. Um, if you went back, gosh, like 30 to 40 years ago, you could go and catch them almost any winter for a couple months in there in between storms so i i wouldn't be surprised if we saw him back this year absolutely do you see that question from jason cutter here i'll throw it up on the screen the leopard sharks biting from the shore this time of year yeah leopard sharks are going to be biting all times of year they spawn in the springtime um, in the springtime, they they aggregate in large groups. I mean, you're I've seen them at Catalina and probably 40 to 60, 20 to 40 pound leopard sharks. And they will aggregate very close to shore in the inshore trough. I've seen them as little as maybe two or three feet of water going back and forth, back and forth. So you're going to find those all year long, but they'll be most productive when that water starts warming up and they get get out of their spawning mode go into the feeding mode and that's going to be really about the middle of april all the way through october oh well that's good that's a good and it's a fun fish to catch and it's not bad table fare either right right it's a, as a matter of fact you know if you went back 40 years ago or so that they sold um steaks of of leopard shark in 
the fish market. So yeah, they are a good fish. And, and the way you prepare them is you just stake them out instead of, you know, making a filet, you just cut them into steak pieces from the head to the tail. Very, very easy to clean that way. Refrigerated, of course, and, and then put them on the barbecue. And they're very much like Mako shark, very white meat, delicious fish. You know, they, any shark like that, that spends most of its time eating inshore fin fish, so that would be like sardine, anchovy, smelt, grunion, and then finish that off with sand crabs or big sand crab eaters has got to have good meat. I mean, they're not eating moss. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Do you see that question there from Jeff in Huntington Beach? Um, let's see. Speaking of Seal Beach, hey, Bill, you ever fished the warm water Seal Beach jetty? Yes. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, I was kind of crying the blues about, about the warm water. The um, Hyperion plant in Redondo Beach, which created the bubble hole inside the harbor, which had warm water and umpteen yellowtails swimming inside the harbor and Bonito and everything there. Of course, that was closed down probably 20 years ago. And now the plant's been decommissioned and and we've seen that in seal beach and 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 there was one back in the day that was off of newland street in in huntington beach those have all been closed down along with uh the one that was off of um the power plants in san onofre those have all been closed down so i miss all of those it really has changed the fishing we in back in those days we saw many more bonita and other fish that would trail in with them uh, barracuda bonita um yellowtail in both los alamitos uh, around the seal beach pier area and then up in the king harbor area that's all gone now just occasional ones that come in there that is incredible look at there's so many different questions now we got devin i'm sorry i'm trying to read all these questions they're just flying in now that i'm sorry bill now that i said they could ask questions so here's devin cruz with another question yeah. about jellyfish when was the last time that we've seen jellyfish and how they affected the surf fishing experience? You know, over the last, gosh, like 30 years or so, we've seen very few of the traditional jellyfish we used to see a ton of in the summer in Southern California. Of course, I grew up in Hermosa Beach, so my zone was Hermosa, Manhattan, Redondo, Palos Verdes, Torrance, those beaches. And we used to have these huge purple and and white jellyfish that would come in and can't tell you how many times I was stung by them. I have not seen them in years. I have seen one occasionally, but not in the great numbers we saw. Um, and then what has replaced that is these smaller jellyfish, um, mar I think they're called mariners, that you see have a little wing and float across the surface and then have tentacles below them. They also still sting. We don't really see too many of those anymore, just like the blue shark. We don't see much of the blue shark but neither of those ever had any effect that i found on on surf fishing they're basically just a a, a um, nuisance back in those days more than they were you know something that was either a bait or, or attracting fish okay you know i caught one of those little crabs sunday night bill little tiny mm -hmm. one with big claws and swim swim their last two appendages were like swim fins. What kind of crabs yeah. are those? Those are mole crabs. And they're they're in the horseshoe crab family. Here in California, they get maybe as big as the, I've seen them as big as the lid of a coffee can. Um, back east, they get 
probably, gosh, maybe a foot across horseshoe crabs back there. Same thing. Um, they, you know, they're funny. They, they dig down into the sand. We've seen a few more normally in El Nino years, you see more of them, um, which is kind of the opposite of sand crabs. You see less, but they eat sand crabs. Sand crabs are one of their favorite foods. And if you're fishing, surf fishing, you cast out a sand crab and you let it sit on the bottom sometimes or retrieve too slowly. All of a sudden you're like, wow, you know, I'm, I, I'm stuck on the bottom. I'm snagged on the bottom and you're looking around you. You know, it's all sand out there. You can't figure out what it is. Well, they come up to the surface, they grab your crab and then they dig down under the surface, surface as they digest it. And you're stuck on the sand all of a sudden it pops out and you reel them in and there your hook is in their mouth because they've been eating your worm or your sand crab. So yeah, they're out there. Definitely. Okay. Perfect. Mike Lewis says he saw lots of little jellyfish out around the channel islands. We've seen a lot of salps out there too. Just a mind numbing amount of salps. I don't know why there's so many salps. It's crazy. There's spots where you can't even see water, Bill. There's so many salps out at the island. Um, wow. It's pretty weird. But this yeah, rain, and it's good to see the jellyfish. This rain we're about to have should have some effect on the fishing, right? The surface is going to stir up a lot of sand crabs, a lot of mole crabs, a lot of worms, a lot of stuff. Yeah, you know, it's really a big question as to what's going to happen. When we have big rains associated with big winds, which, which it, it, this is what they're saying the storm's going to have, but you know, the proof is in the pudding. It really turns over surf fishing. And I would normally wait maybe a week for things to settle down before I get out there again. And then on the other hand, when it's just raining and not particularly windy, it has very little, little effect on them. But one thing I've noticed over all of the years is that, you know, if they say, Hey, the storm's going to start hitting on Friday morning, I'm out there Thursday because that low pressure compression that comes in across the water before the storm comes in as, as all the clouds are setting up, that has almost always been a fantastic surf fishing time. The fish are feeding then because they know a storm's coming and they know it could be several days or a week before they can feed again. So they're going to gorge that day before the storm comes in. Oh uh, yeah. That barometer. That barometer yep. has a giant effect on the fish, and it also has a giant effect on the uh, on the lobsters. We w- noticed that when Justin's out there fishing, there's a much better crawl when that barometer starts to drop. And it's yes. the thing with the fish; they all get ready. They know they know something big's on its way, and they know they got to get out of the way. So they better eat before they get out of the way, right? <laughs> That's right. They better eat before they go and hide. Just like the rest of us. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a guy on TV who had taken one of those huge um, underground silos in the Midwest that they used for missiles, and he turned it into his survival place. And it was really very cool. And he said, you know, if you figure out where I am and you come knocking on my door during Armageddon, don't come up to my door and say, oh, I've got all kinds of wep- weapons. And don't come up to my door and say, I, I have all kinds of fuel. Only come up to my door and say, I've got food and I'll let you in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. And you and I will always be able to find some kind of food because there's still going to be fish. That's exactly right. And, you know, as far as Southern California is concerned, you know, if, if the day came, man, I know where all the shrimp is. I know where all the clams are. 
of course, you know where the lobsters are. I know where the crabs are. I know where there's mussels, oysters. There's plenty of food. You know where to look. Absolutely. And the surf fishing thing is such a great way because you don't need a phenomenal amount of money. The price of fuel doesn't affect it. That's why I think you were so successful Saturday and Sunday at the show. Well, you were successful Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but there were so many people that are now wanting to get into this surf fishing thing because you're making it so appealing and so easy to understand as they start to understand you don't need a big giant Viking and you don't need to burn thousands of dollars with their fuel. You can go catch fish in the morning before you go to work or in the afternoon after work or on your day off, whatever. It's super accessible. And I think that's the really cool thing about having you on the show because you're letting the masses know about how easy it is to go fly fishing or surf fish. I don't know why I keep saying fly surf fish. (laughs) Well, absolutely. You know, we always talk about the fact that like if you're starting out to go surf fishing, it's not the same on a, on a 16 day long range trip. That's for sure. If you're starting out, and you need a rod and reel combo to use, go in your garage. Almost everybody's got a trout rod. Get your longest, whippiest trout rod, put new six-pound line on your, your spinning reel, and you're ready to go. That's really all you need, and you can go buy the tackle shop, spend 10 bucks in hooks and bait, and it's a couple sliding sinkers and a swivel, and you've got the same that the guy who's got the $350 rod has. You've got the same chance of catching the same fish. And really, you know, it helps to like look at my book and look at online and different examples of how to find fish at the beach. But once you catch on to what to look for there, it's very accessible. And you're down there for, you know, you can be there an hour. You can be there four hours. You can be there half an hour. It's not a huge commitment. You hop back in your car, wipe the sand off your feet and you're ready to either go home and relax or go back to work. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Let me show you something. I want to show this real, real quick. I got a little video from John Brett over at Akuma. This could be a really good reel for surf fishing. You can talk about it afterwards, gang. Watch this real quick. Hey guys, this is John Bretza, Director of Product Development for Akuma Fishing Tackle. What we have here is an addition to the Tesoro spinning reel line. This is a new 6,000 size that all you've been waiting for. Great reel for all those guys down in the southeast or the northeast that want to go target you know, big fish on lighter tackle. This 6,000 size holds 290 yards of 30 pound braid or 195 yards of 50 pound braid. It's packed with features. It's all Lumalite construction, body, side plate, and rotor. It's got the IPX7 full waterproof body, so if this thing gets submerged, you're gonna have no issues at all with it fishing. As far as a drag system, it features a carbonite drag system with a maximum 33 pounds of drag pressure, so a tremendous drag output. So say you're gonna take this and fish a, a small, medium-sized tarpon, you're gonna have a pulling power with this reel. The best feature it has is it has Okuma's new flight drive system. So that's gonna give you that really smooth operation so it feels good all day long when you're on the water. And one of the things when you're fishing braided line, there's a lot of stress placed on any reel regardless of you know brand or manufacturer. The one thing that we equipped this reel to make the Tesoro different is that instead of a stainless steel spool shaft, we used a titanium spool shaft. So this thing's super strong, super durable, but it's also something that's never gonna corrode. This uh, little 6,000 size reel has a dual anti-verse, 
and it's all machine cut gearing, uh, machine cut brass, main gear and penny gear. The Tesoro 6000 has a 6.2 to one gear ratio and that has 41.3 inches of line pickup. The entire reel weighs in at only 15.8 ounces. This reel is gonna retail for $359. And one thing that's unique about this reel that's different than the larger Tesoros is that when you flip that bale over and you turn the handle, the bale's gonna automatically engage. On the larger sizes, most anglers don't want that feature, but this is more universal for live baiting and casting and jigging. So we put that feature into this 6,000 size. If you wanna find out more information on the new Tesoro 6000, check it out at okumafishingusa.com or go see it at a local retailer near you. What do you think of that, Bill? Would that catch a fish in the surf? That would definitely catch a fish in the surf. You know, that would be, I would use a reel like that from the rocks, first of all. So if I'm fishing the jetty or I, I, I was trying to figure out exactly where he was, I, I, a few more seconds, I would have figured it out. Somewhere we have rock structure like that. That's what you're looking for. And then, of course, as you start making your way down the Baja Peninsula, your reel is getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you meet Wes. And then it's big enough. <laughs> yeah exactly hey one of our um one of our followers members buddies he's down here right now in cabo but he has a question about surf fishing the ob pier dog beach san diego mm -hmm. with the surfers and everything yeah let's see can we surf fish by the ob pier or dog beach in san diego with the surfers um, yes. And, and here's a little bit on etiquette with the surfers. First of all, um, gosh, times have changed. When, when I was growing up, when Dave was growing up, when people who, you know, are, are our age growing up here in Southern California, if you were an angler, especially if a surf fisherman, you were a surfer, a diver, a swimmer, a water skier, um, a free diver, a scuba diver, angler. You were a waterman. You did all a paddler. You did all of these different things. And when you weren't catching waves, your board was on the beach and you were fishing. Times have really changed. All kinds of people moved to California who were not from California. They watched all those Gidget movies. Everybody thinks they're a surfer or wants to learn to be a surfer or become a surfer or you know something in those categories. And so they're out there in the water and they know most of them, not all, but a large percentage of them know very little about the water, what's in the water, wave movement, all of those things. As all of those of you who, who have tried surfing or know surfing, it's a very difficult sport to learn. Um, you know, I surfed my whole life. It took the first probably two years to be able to tan stand up on a board and, and turn so a lot of these folks in the water that have very little experience and they'll walk up to me and say are there fish here you know i mean things like that which i think to myself boy if you knew the sharks that were swimming underneath your feet when you're sitting out there you wouldn't be out there surfing so the the, the best thing on etiquette for surfing is if you get there early like i do really early in the morning um they're not going to be in the water yet and you're going to want to go away from where they are because they're they're basically although in large part they're far outside of where you're surfing you don't want them to be in your way you don't want to be in their way but let's say for example you are in a place where surfers float into and and remember most of the time there's a longshore current so even though they might float in front of you now in three minutes they're going to be past you 
the best thing to do is rather than saying, hey, I was here before you were, and this is my spot and all that stuff, just reel up, wait for them to float by, cast out your bait and start over again. Sometimes I just move down the beach to a different spot when it, when I see surfers are going to accumulate in the area where I am. Um, you'll find some that are very knowledgeable. They'll come in and say, hey, you know, there's a big Corbina right over here, cast right over here. And then, of course, as I said, you'll have the other ones who have no idea what they're doing and will do nothing but get in your way. And rather than, because I've learned really the, the hard way, getting in an argument with them over, you know, you were here first or you've got the whole ocean. This is my spot where the fish are. Just give them a minute, minute to either A, float away or walk up the beach 100 feet or 150 feet and fish there until they're gone and then come back into your spot. There you go. That's perfect. Yeah, there's no reason to get upset. You're supposed to be out there relaxing, having a nice yes. relaxing day. And it's a battle that you'll never win anyway because, like you said, they're not from around these here parts. So they're already upset because they grew up away from the beach. So they're already in a bad <laughs> mood. And now you're not going to change their exactly. mood. Right. Yeah, That's exactly they, right. I don't even know what it's about to be on the water and how relaxing and how enjoyable it is and to take it all into effect. But hey, we got Matthew Martin here asking about Bill, what's your very most favorite bait and what's your use least most favorite bait? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Well, you know, when it comes to baits, you know, of course you have artificial baits where you have grubs and, and cast masters, crocodiles. Lucky Craft hard baits, Battlestar hard baits, Rapala hard baits. Those are kind of the most common baits you're going to use in surf that are lures. And then, of course, you have a variety of flies. Um, the red and white Clouser minnow and the chartreuse and white Clouser minnow, since like the 1920s, have been the top flies to use in the surf, whether you fly fishing with them or like me putting them on the Carolina rig. So those are all lures that are really effective in the surf. There's not one I like more than the other. I mean, something you have to remember about those is over the past, gosh, I'd say almost 20 years now, not maybe that long, 15 years, the Lucky Craft lure has caught so many halibut. But the reason is, is that if you went back to, let's say the 1930s and 40s and 50s, everybody was casting out a crocodile spoon in those days and that was catching just as much halibut. So the thing is that more people are using this certain type of lure. So it looks like it's really effective in the surf. That doesn't mean the other lures that are out there, the cast masters, crocodiles, and other types of hard baits don't work. Of course, you've got swim baits. You've got flukes. You've got um, drop shot systems. You've got all that in the lure world. And then the live bait world, which is what I like to concentrate on, you know, you've got all of the natural baits or foods that occur in the surf. You've got mussels and clams and goat shrimp, sand crabs. Um, there's 3,000 variety of worm in the marine environment. So the traditional ones would be blood worms and lug worms. Probably my two favorite baits, put them on the top of the list, would be sand crabs. Number one, because they're so incredibly accessible and there's so many billions of them in the sand to choose from. And last but not least, they're free. <laughs> That's always a big one for us that are the surf anglers. We like all that free stuff. Um, and, and of course, the last thing with, with sand crabs is that when they come to the surface in May, when the water temperature in Southern California is about 60 degrees or warmer, all the crabs come up to the surface. 
all of the surfish give up on all the other foods out there and they just gorge on sand crabs. So it really narrows down in that May, June, July period of what you're going to use for bait. There's really not a question about what to use. And then the second to that would be ghost shrimp. Ghost shrimp, without question, are, are the candy bait of the surf. And people will often ask, what do you catch on a ghost shrimp? And the answer is whatever gets to them first. And Dave and I were talking about this before on a Wednesday. If you fl- if you got a big ghost shrimp and you fly lined it on a kelp patty, a yellowtail would gulp that thing down in a New York second. And I have seen some incredible ghost shrimp. You know, you might go in Los Alamitos Bay and they're about two inches long. And then I was down in Mag Bay and this guy on, on a long range trip about a dozen years ago. And this guy brought in a big fish from the, I don't, I might've been a grouper. I can't remember what it was. And it coughed up a, about a half pound, uh, ghost shrimp. The thing was about the size of a small lobster. So they're, they're all different sizes. You usually find them smaller up here, but when you get through the summer a bit, you're into July, August, September, where they've gorged on those sand crabs or ready to eat something new. You throw out a, with a light sinker, one of those ghost shrimp, and there are plenty of spot fin croaker, yellow fin croaker, corbina, and big perch that are going to gulp that thing down. One of my favorite baits by far. Here's a unique question from Devin Cruz. Look at this one. Can you see that? What is the most interesting thing I found washed up on the beach? <laughs> well, um, gosh, I, I, I could show you some pictures. One of the most interesting things I saw washed up on the beach, that would have been at Newport Beach, was a bikini top. <laughs> really wondered where the person was that lost the top and where the bottom was. So that was kind of an interesting thing. I, I think one of the more interesting things I've, I've hooked and landed on the beach that would have been something that washed up on the beach was I was fishing in at Newport Beach near the jetties and I got snagged. You know, I was casting very close to the rocks, which is where the fish are. I got snagged. I thought I got snagged. It was kind of moving like a fish. It was kind of coming, but it wouldn't come. So I got to the point where I had to pull on it hard. I fished six pound test. So figured my line would break. Something broke. And the next thing you know, I'm fighting this fish and I fought it for about 15 minutes got it in the surf in front of me. I could see it was about a six pound spot fin croaker, got it into shore. It had got hung up on a sabiki rig that was hung up on the rocks. It had taken a bite of one of the hooks on it. I caught it, but what I caught was I caught one of the sabiki hooks and then it was on about three sabiki hooks below. It was hooked onto that. So Brought it in, took it off the hook, told it was its luckiest day, and let it back go again. But we we have seen all, I mean, gosh, when you think of what we've seen washed up on the beach, syringes, like a million condoms, um, I mean, you name it, all kinds of weird fish that we didn't know what they were. It's a lot of stuff that washes up on the beach in California. It's just the, if you were to walk around with a camera back in the 60s, 70s, 80s as you were doing this, you probably can't even remember all the weird stuff that you saw washed up on the beach. Come, and you and I will both tell everybody, if we go back to the way it was in the 70s, there was so – people think there's a lot of trash in the water now. In the 70s, it was incredible because they used the ocean back then as a trash can. And if you remember – and you guys mm-hmm. can go look this up. Go Google this. 
down at what we used to call Tin Can Beach, there at Seal Beach, the cans, gang, the cans, the cans, the tin cans were stacked up taller than our homes because back in the day, yeah. off of uh, L.A., off of Point Furman, there's an area about three and a half miles off the beach there. It's called the dumping grounds. And that's where the barges, before anybody knew any better, we're not judging. We just didn't know any better. We would take all our trash, put it on these barges, and they would take it out into the ocean, and they would dump it into the ocean. And they, they only had to go three miles out, but the prevailing wind and the prevailing current would wash everything onto the beach at Seal Beach. That's where it would go, and then the skip loaders would... That, for me as a young man, I just thought it was so weird that they would skip load that stuff and make big piles of it and then load it back up on the barges and take it back out and dump it back out there. I just thought that was bizarre. So when you guys look back and you look at us and you go, oh, you guys, it, we did everything we could to make sure that everything was beautiful. We stopped all the garbage. The beaches are 10,000 times better today than they ever were back in those days, gang. You don't understand. When you say, oh, there's a lot of trash on the beach today, you don't even know what you're talking about. That That is absolutely true. And not only all the offshore dumping, but there was no netting in the L.A. River, the, the uh, Los Alamitos area, the Santa Ana River. There was nothing to stop all of the trash that was washed. And, and that's the thing about the L.A. County, Orange County, all of the gutter, you know, all of the drains that go into the gutters on the roads we drive in do not go to the Hyperion plant and, and are treated. They go directly into the ocean. So all of the trash, all the styrofoam, everything that was on the, the uh, streets in those days um, would wash into the rivers and be taken right into the ocean. So you had all that stuff. You had all the stuff being dumped offshore. Um, and then, of course, that that era ended and they started doing their putting the netting in, cleaning that up more, doing a better job. And then the thing is, the number one thing after that was cigarette butts. There were tons of cigarette butts that were on the beach. And as people, you know, as a new generation came and said, like, hey, we're not going to be smoking anymore, you know, um, not because of the butts, just because of the health issues of it and of course they taught us in school that started in about 1968 when i was in school was the first time we talked about cigarettes or saw a movie about it or something like that that ended and so now the big thing down there are um plastic lids there are thousands and tens of thousands of water bottle lids milk bottle lids shampoo bottle it's all plastic bottle lids down there by the thousands that's what they need to be concentrating on now oh absolutely but back to what we were talking about when we first started the show about all the rain and all the the runoff that's going to happen here in the next four or five days it could be absolutely incredible what it's going to stir up off the bottom and it can because we're going to come out of this. We're going to get a lot of rain tomorrow, Thursday, going to get a little bit more Friday. And then Saturday, it's going to be nice. And then it's going to start again Sunday afternoon. So if you had an opportunity, somebody asked this question a little bit ago. If you had an opportunity, would you go try your luck on Saturday in the nice, nicer weather, not pouring down? It's going to be windy. It's going to be rough. But you got an opportunity maybe to go fish the surf. Would you try that? 
after all this rain? Yeah, absolutely. I'd get up first thing in the morning on Saturday morning and get out there and see what the conditions are. Now, I, I tell everybody all the time, you know, so through the price of gas being exponential, find webcams. They're all over the place on the beaches that you would frequent. Favorite those. I just put them in a folder actually on online and I can go through those in a matter of minutes and look at the beach conditions. And I, if I'm going to go Saturday, I'm looking at the beach conditions Friday morning in, in similar to the hour I'm going Saturday and Friday evening to see what's going on and then get down there and give it a shot for three or four hours before you have a, a change. And the, and the same between those storms. Depends on how big that storm was. If that storm comes through and it stirs up everything and it's windy and there's swell and there's water, you know, rain on top of it. You might find that Sunday, you know, when there's a break between the storms, it's not good. But on the other hand, if it wasn't windy and you had a lot of rain, you can really get in there on Sunday and catch some fish before the next storm comes in. Yeah, because that barometer is going to jump right back down again. They're going to be right back into the feeding mode. So, Steve, I wanted to make sure I got your question in, and you're very welcome for me remembering that's part of being sober. It makes it a little easier to remember stuff. It's pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's okay, for we sure. Got, we got some time. So if you have some more questions, I know a lot of you just jumped on here. We got the great Bill Varney, surf fishing guru guy. If you guys are thinking about fishing in Southern California on the surf, or if you're going to come down to mexico wherever you're thinking about fishing in the surf give us a jingle here leave us a or excuse not a jingle give us a message throw a message out there you can either leave a message on facebook or on youtube we'll do our very best to answer because bill and i just got done doing the bard hall fish and tackle and boat show in long beach and uh i don't know about you bill but after that i was pretty dang tired plus i went hoop netting on sunday night until 1 30 in the morning we got wow. big giant lobsters, but I came home and I passed out and it's, it's been tough for my old man, but to get catch up. Absolutely. I mean, gosh, all, you know, I don't mind all the losing your voice, but speaking and talking to people and it's so much fun. I, I, I see all the folks and I, I learn a lot. You know, people will ask me questions. I'll ask them questions. I'll, they'll show me their pictures. They'll tell me what they used. You know, it's really helpful, but, Man, when you're when it's time to pack up and you're ready to go, you are just exhausted. And then you need a day to rest for sure before you start moving on. And you just drove from Long Beach back to Colorado, right? I, I did. But I must say, you know, you're sitting in the car and it was beautiful weather. I mean, the sky, there wasn't a cloud in the sky for a thousand miles, snow-capped mountains, beautiful rolling green hills. and you know, that, that drive, once you get to, I, I would say, you know, I really even before Vegas, may, maybe about um, halfway between um, uh, Baker and Vegas and then all the way here from there, absolutely spectacular. Utah is a very beautiful state, all different colors and, and rock formations, blue sky, beautiful trees. It's a beautiful drive. And of course, Colorado's is absolutely breathtaking because once you come into the state in Grand Junction, that's where you join the Colorado River and you drive along the river 
for three or four hours and it's in giant canyons it's surrounded by trees you can see fish jumping you see all kinds of fly anglers off to the side because in the lower parts when you get by grand junction it doesn't although it snows there it's in the 40s and 50s in the winter there so you can fish all year long there and you have a lot of folks that not a lot but a number that and mostly guides that have dories that row their wooden dories. They look just like the dories we used as lifeguards. And then you have a fly angler fly fishing out of the front of it. And as you're cruising along and see those guys hooking fish and fighting fish, it's pretty cool. It's pretty darn oh, cool. Absolutely. That part of, that makes the drive not even a big deal for you and me. We're just like staring at the fishermen. It's like, here, honey, you want to drive now? So I can stare out the window at the guys fishing exactly. on the river. It's your turn exactly. to drive, honey. That's so, that's exactly true. So um, my f- good friend Steve that's still on here asking questions, he just sent this up. And I, I think I know the answer to this, but maybe I don't. Do you know anywhere they, they can buy sh- buy live ba- shad on the beach? There isn't, right? It's going to be either mm-hmm. sand crab or uh, ghost shrimp or worms, right? Right. That's exactly right. Sand crabs, ghost shrimp, worms. You know, other baits that you can find, clams and mussels and stuff, stuff like that. But as far as like anchovy, sardine is concerned, um, you can't, you know, back in the day, they sold, and Dave remembers, and his dad did it too, I'm sure. They sold anchovy, because we didn't have sardines back then, but they sold anchovy on the pier. And you could go out to the pier and spend a buck and get 10 anchovy, put them in your bucket and get in the car and go somewhere. You know, now when we're looking for live baits and there's some really good halibut anglers out there. Okay, I'm going to give up some secrets here. There's some halibut anglers out there that fish smelt from the harbor. And, of course, smelt is a super bait in, in the surf, in the bay, in the estuaries, inside harbors for fishing for halibut. So they will go down on the dock normally at night, sometimes early in the morning will work, but I would, I almost always do it at night personally. And I would take a, um, gosh, if you go to the 99 cent store, they have these little, they're like a little tent made of netting that you put that unfolds. And, and you actually, they're used to like put over a plate of food when you're at the park or somewhere outside to keep the bugs off of it. It looks like an umbrella. Oh, yeah. We'll turn those over, tie a piece of string. There's like a center thing that comes up. Tie a piece of string to that. And then you just get Wonder Bread. You can get rid of the the uh, heel, or not the heel, but the outside of the crust, the outside of the bread. The inside, of course, is really soft. And you just mush that on the edge around this thing, this this uh, cover, which now is upside down. So once again, it looks just like an umbrella upside down. And put a light down on the water, a flashlight. I just use a headlight, Promar's headlight. Just get that down on the water and drop this thing down maybe, gosh, six inches to a foot at the deepest down there. And those smelt will come up and they will feed on all of that bread in there. They'll actually break it away. And it will kind of float away and attract the others and then just lift it out of the water. And you got half a dozen right there, put it in the bucket, back down in the water again. I get a couple dozen like that and then take them in a bucket with an, uh, a, an aerator with batteries in it to the beach. Normally near rocky structure, inside harbors, off of jetties, um, entrance to an estuary and fish halibut on the Carolina rig with that. Works great. That's a good idea. And 
I don't know if you saw that net we were showing a couple weeks ago from Promar. They made that new mesh, our uh, monofilament hoop net for catching bait. It's an incredible product. It's oh. only like 40 bucks. It's a beautiful product, and you can drop it down and do the same thing. We have a video over on our website that my buddy Justin's son, Ryland, made did that showing people how to catch the jacks mount with the bread right at the dock and bringing the net up full. It's a phenomenal exactly. thing too. Marley's trying and, and, to Marley's trying to chew on my light cord right now. So that's why I keep clicking at him because I don't want him <laughs> to get electrocuted. But gang, there's so many questions. We got so many cool questions. I want to show you Devin wanted to know, do you know anything about the cat live cast nets above point conception? Oh, okay. So I'm not familiar. I, I, a couple of things on the, on the cast nets for bait that I'm not familiar with. Number one, cast netting in California had been legal forever. I believe they've allowed it. Like you said, North of basically um, San Francisco to, to test it out and see if it would be a way that people could legitimately catch fin, fin fish close to shore without taking too many. Um, Department of Fish and Wildlife is now talking about extending that throughout the state. I do believe they are going to approve that. So th that would be a benefit to us. And of course, we'll need some of our friends to come from Louisiana, from uh, the Texas Corpus Christi area and down in Florida to teach us how to do that. And also, you know, the pong Pongeros in, in Mexico, of course, are very effective at cast netting. So I do think that that is, I, I think in the next year, we're going to see that there's a possibility that Department of Fish and Wildlife will allow that on a limited basis. Well, that's big news. For the Fish and Wildlife mm -hmm. to open something up, mm -hmm. we better have mm -hmm. a parade. That might, yeah, might want right. to declare that a national holiday that day. That's right. And then, well, you have, you have CCA and Wayne Coto to thank for things that are opening up, definitely. Oh, absolutely. And we talked about that so much at the show, how important it is to be involved with CCA so that because they're like we always say, they're on a mission to stop us from fishing. So yes. we've got to be involved and there's nobody else that gives us a voice at the table than uh, CCA. So we're always talking about CCA game because it's so important because we do have to keep our rights to fish open. I want to go back to Mike Lewis. I don't want to get too political. Mike Lewis is asking you, Bill, is there any advantage to using crickets or mealworms or anything like that from a pet store for surf fishing? You know, I have not have had luck with them. Um, you know, we have tried mealworms, you know, all, all of which very well in freshwater, obviously. We've tried mealworms. We've tried crickets. We've tried grasshoppers. We've tried um, uh, earthworms, which I thought for sure would work, did not work. Um, and, and so none of those things, we've really had any luck with any of those things. One thing we've had really good luck with, not so much in California, but definitely around uh, San Quentin, um, kind of that zone from below Ensenada down in that cold water to maybe 50 miles below San Quentin, is garden snails. They work, they work really well down there for calico bass. Um, and we've got a couple of Corbina on, on garden snails down there. Um, but the other wow. stuff, it works great in freshwater. Can't, don't seem to get it in saltwater. That is weird. But yeah, I use mealworms. I use crickets when we were bluegill fishing. 
We used to use them. It was a phenomenal bait. But I think it's going to go back, Mike Lewis, to uh, matching the hatch. And there's not a lot of mealworms and there's not a lot of crickets in the ocean. We don't see any of that stuff out there. So trying to get them to eat something they're not normally eating, I don't think that's going to work too well. The blood, the those big, what do you call innkeeper worms? That's innkeeper worms. Holy mackerel. That thing will bite the living bejesus out of you. If you've never seen one of those, they will get your attention right fast. And those are one of the greatest baits in, in inside harbor areas that the innkeeper worm and an innkeeper worm. It looks like a, like a big hot dog, really. I mean, it looks like other things too, but it's a family show, but it, but it looks like a hot dog. Um, it doesn't have a, like a mouth i mean it must have a mouth but it is perceivably when you when you slurp one up and you get it and you're going to use it for bait it doesn't really have a mouth it doesn't really have a a head and a tail to it it just really looks like kind of a beefy a beefy hot dog and i i'm telling you spot fin big spot fin croaker in particularly newport harbor and corbina big corbina in newport harbor literally vacuum those things up they're, they, they, you know, they're like this. They're listen. Get my fingers over it. They're about this long, and they're about this big around, and they don't chew on them or turn them around in their mouth, or they just literally open up their mouth and slurp them right down their throat. They, they are an incredible bait. I'm going to try to look one up for everybody, buddy. Here, it's one of those things that you you see for the first time, and you you say to yourself, "Wow, you know, I don't think I'll ever forget that." when you guys see one of these innkeeper worms you're gonna go oh okay and there's some tackle stores that sell them or there used to be back when i used to surf fish but um i don't know if you can buy them today or not they're crazy Mm -hmm. man was against a lot to buy them now well what what has happened if it's um goodness maybe 15 years ago now was there were numerous things that the state did so in order, for, they didn't have control over these guys who would get, go and collect bait for clams and worms and all this. And it was live bait, you know, like we were pro- providing live bait. We weren't taking frozen stuff and selling them to the tackle shop. We were going out and collecting it ourselves. So what they did was in order to control all of this, instead of saying like, you can only have so many innkeeper worms or so many sand crabs or so many clam or, or whatever, opali moss, whatever you were collecting. They made a law that that um, restricted the transportation of living creatures, and that was how they did it. So you couldn't theoretically, and you still can't theoretically, take a um, smelt that you've caught with Wonder Bread, and it's in your bucket now from Huntington Harbor in your car to Huntington Cliffs. That's against the law. So that was how they stopped all, because every single tackle shop in California that was within, from the valley to the beach, prior to this, they all carried sand crabs. Everybody had sand crabs in their tackle shop. That that was one of the baits that tackle shops carried in California for over 50 years and now none of them there's not one single tackle shop where you can purchase a sand crab because you need this special license which is thousands of dollars a year 
to do transportation of live animals. So maybe they're on a mission to stop us from fishing. Maybe. That's I think that's good. good. If that law doesn't make sense to you, gang, that may be another really good reason to get involved with CCA California. CCA California is a phenomenal organization. Why Bill looks up a picture. It looks like Darren just found a picture. He's saying, ew, how gross. But <laughs> you guys want to get involved with CCA California. It's a super important thing to be involved in because they're trying to take away our, our – um, ability to fish in california so if you haven't been a part of cca california make sure you become a member it's super important for all of us to be members so that we can slow down the stoppage of the machine to stop us from fishing in california i'm going to throw the qr code up there right now and uh we got about five more minutes we'll try to answer as many more questions as you can our good friend darren one sent me a message on my phone, Bill. I already know the answer. I know why you did it, but why did you move from the beach since you're such a big time surf fisherman all the way to Colorado? Well, first of all, I knew that Colorado had good fishing. So there was no way I was moving to like, you know, Tennessee or something like that. But my family, you know, really be careful. Sorry about Tennessee. No, nothing is Tennessee landlocked. They're a good place. Um, my family moved to Los Angeles in 1866. Um, my my great 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 grandfather was from Connecticut, and in 1860 he joined the Connecticut Regiment Regiment, which was the most decorated Northern uh, soldier regiment in all of the Civil War. They're credited with freeing more slaves than any any other regiment, any other group in the U.S. Army. After the war was over in 1865, he stayed in the South to relocate blacks, many of which went to um, to Maryland and places like that. And they helped arm them and make sure that they were safe and set up their schools and stuff. And after that, he decided, I'm not going to back to Connecticut. So in 1866, he came to Los Angeles. So he owned land um, near what is now uh, University of Southern California which was a Methodist college in the 1880s. We were pumpkin farmers there. We later opened a store there. And then his son-in-law, um, who married the man who married my great-great-grandfather's daughter, became a supervisor for the city of Los Angeles. He was a supervisor from um, 1890 to, to uh, 1906, then became the first fire commissioner for the city of Los Angeles. My dad was born at Hermosa Beach in 1927. I was born in the same hospital, City of Angels, as my dad in 1958. And so we saw California change dramatically from just a fantastic place to live, to a place where there was never any ethnic animosity. I mean, I, I remember as a kid, all of the different people that used to be our friends and 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 our gardener who was Japanese, the man who worked on our our um, kitchen who was German, the lady who was a Black American who helped clean our home. I mean, I can just go on and on of all the different, all the Hispanic people, the Latinos, the Chinese, the Japanese. Think of all the Japanese, you know, that we when we were kids we used to go fishing with and stuff. So it was just such a great place to grow up and live. And as time changed and it got more crowded and overcrowded, I just thought it was time for me to you know, take my wife and I and our family and my, my kids are all grown up now and, and move on to a different place that was kind of like going back in time again to 
to living in Southern California. So I moved up here to the mountains. I live at 10,200 feet. I, I joke that I live at 10,214 feet because our bed is upstairs and that's where I sleep half the time. Um, but I moved up here. I knew the fishing was good. I'd lived here a couple of years after getting out of high school, graduated in 1976 in high school and, and moved out here about three days after graduating to become a ski bum. And so I knew I wanted to move back here. And the fishing, you know, A, the fishing is phenomenal here. I can take every one of our, you know, people watching us, every one of your members every day to a lake right probably 30 minutes from my house where you got a shot at a 10-pound brown trout, 15-pound cut bow, and a 35-pound pike. So fishing is phenomenal up here. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, times have changed, you guys. Like, you can get on a plane. I can fly a round trip to, to Santa Ana for $122 and be fishing this afternoon. So I like going back and forth about once every month. My wife and I, both of our parents, live out in California, and some of our relatives are there. And we have places to stay, and we really like going both to California and uh, Colorado. So that was why. That's my answer. Now I, answer. I I found the bait shot. I want to give you take give you a shot of this. Now this is a, a some of the bait. This is a group of bait that I like to use in the fall and into the winter. It's made up of sidewinder crabs, ghost shrimp, and you'll see this big thing that's kind of bent in a half circle, which is the innkeeper worm. It's not something you're going to have for lunch. Oh yeah, there he is on yeah. the far right. Kind of move the camera a little bit more. You're not, we're not seeing him. There, keep going right there. There he is, rolled up in that kind of folded in half. That's an innkeeper worm gang, and like Bill said, they inhale those things. There's no nibbling. When, you know, once again, it's just like a big hot dog. Looks just like a big fat hot dog that's pink and ready to be cooked. And I'm gonna cast that thing out there, and I'm gonna get it cooked inside the stomach of a, gi a giant spot fin or, or a Corbina. Re really great fishing. And the, you know, the thing about innkeeper worms, that's the same thing about surf fishing. If I was to go outside the Harbor, let's say I went under the, let's, let's just stick with Newport beach. I went outside the Harbor and I went underneath the Newport beach pier and I collected sand crabs, beautiful soft shell sand crabs. If I went inside the Harbor and put one of those on my Carolina rig and cast that out, even though there's Corbina, Spotfin, Yellowfin, all the stuff that's in the surf, nothing's going to eat that thing inside the harbor. Surfish did not be get big by just eating anything that went by. They're going to eat what occurs naturally in the areas where they live. So it's the same with that innkeeper worm. If I put that thing on the hook and I cast it out out in the surf, I'm going to probably have a very low probability of a big fish eating that. It's going to be most effective inside the harbor areas or estuaries where I found it. Oh, okay. That's good to know. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. Bill, we already blew through an hour. I Wow. It's amazing. It is amazing. Mm -hmm. I uh, want to thank everybody for sending in your questions today, helping Bill and I get this show rolling along. You guys had a bunch of great questions. I hope we got to all of them. I tried to keep track of them. Arnie? Bill will probably be at Del Mar. I am still trying to get a permission slip from Kelly because that monkey, I'm telling you, Marley, he's right here. Marley drove Kelly crazy when I was gone. 
So I don't know if I can get another permission slip to come to Del Mar. I really want to, but I also want to stay married. <laughs> well, I will be at Del Mar. I'll be there the whole time. Um, I'll be doing daily seminars there. Really look forward to everybody coming by and visiting and telling me their tales and showing me their pictures and asking questions and just having a great time. We love Sir Fisher. Absolutely. And you're you're good explainer at how to do it. Gang, I want to thank everybody for watching our show today. I hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you, Akuma, for always taking care of us on Wednesdays. John Brett said that was a great video you made. I'll show that every once in a while on the show. Thank you very much. And Bill says that's a good reel to fish in the surf. So go get yourself a Tesoro spinning reel, gang. John kind of explained it very well, so you'll know what to get. Bill, thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you all tomorrow. We'll have a great show tomorrow. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you all tomorrow. See ya. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.